uh, the Lord Jesus was born. And it's this time of year when his followers gather together willingly and joyfully to celebrate his birth. But we want to be careful not to be thinking that when we celebrate his birth, we're speaking of his beginning because he has no beginning. We're really celebrating the fact that he who always existed became Emmanuel, God with us. Almighty God, transcendent, otherwise unreachable, came near in the form of a babe. And that's the event we really celebrate every day, but especially during this time of year as we lead up to Christmas Day pretty soon. The Lord Jesus came to offer eternal life, and we've been tracking his rather heated conversations with a particular people group, Jewish religious leaders in the province of Judea in the city of Jerusalem. And they've been having a give and take. Last week we saw that he offered to them, in spite of the fact that they were insulting and demeaning to him, yet he continued to persist in holding out to them the promise of eternal life. And yet in spite of it, I want you to see the very sad and tragic response they made to the Lord's offer of eternal life. So here it is. We'll pick up where we left off. We're in John chapter 8 again tonight, this time verse 52. Just a few verses tonight. John chapter 8 will begin in verse 52, and you'll get a glimpse at the terrible response, I'm sad to say, my own people uh, showed to our own Messiah. John Chapter 8, verse 52, see how it begins? The Jews, I think I emphasized this point at least one time before, but I want to do it again. Forgive me if I'm overdoing it. Uh, the Jews here is not a reference to the Jews in general, Jewish people. This is not an indictment against all Jews. I have to emphasize that because those who think so have based anti-Semitism on, on verses like this, those Jews. But this is actually better translated, the Judeans. In the Greek, I'm not making this up. That's actually what the word means, not the Jews, the Judeans. What does that mean? Uh, the Lord is having conversation, as I mentioned, with a specific people group. It is the Jewish religious leadership in the province of Judea in the city of Jerusalem. It was them, not all the Jews, because all the Lord's early followers were Jews. So this is not an insinuation that the Lord is through uh, with all Jews. This is a reference to the Judean Jewish religious leaders living in Jerusalem who the Lord was confronting with the gospel and who they were resenting and resisting. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste of death. They insinuated that what the Lord was offering to them was a sourced in demons. Who in their right mind would have the audacity and the arrogance to suggest he had the capacity to offer eternal life to the extent that people would not die? In fact, they say, what are you talking about? Abraham died. Not just Abraham. All the prophets died. Everybody dies. Who in their right mind would suggest there's a way to avoid the finality of death? Who do you think you are, essentially, is what they're saying. Now listen, they're not saying, you, Yeshua, you, Jesus, are crazy. Oh no, it's much worse. They're not saying he's psychiatrically imbalanced. They're saying he's demon-possessed. 
Can you imagine saying that to transcendent deity, almighty God, who has no beginning nor end? Well, anyway, that's what, that's what they did. And in verse 53, they continue, Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died also. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are, is what they're saying. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. See, they claimed to have a connection to Almighty God, and yet they were demeaning the one whom Almighty God sent. Verse 55, and you have not come to know him. Look, he said this to the Jewish religious leaders in the capital, the religious political capital of Israel. Are you kidding me? He is saying to these religious folks, you don't even know God. That's what he said. But he said, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'll be a liar like you. He said, they're liars. But I do know him and keep his word. Folks, the only way to come uh, into the full knowledge of the mind and heart of God is to go through Jesus Christ. Why? Because he only, only he, knows the Father with such closeness and intimacy that what he reveals to us of the Father is an exact representation and reflection. Everyone else is a a distortion to some extent of what the Father is all about. But the Lord Jesus, he alone, has such close connection, intimacy with the Father, even from before time, if you really want to know who God is and what he's like, you have to take a close look at Jesus, his son. Not only does the Lord know him, he says, I keep his word. If you want to find out not only what God is like, but what God requires of you, you have to take a long look at Jesus. Because only he is the one who perfectly obeyed him. I not only know him, I keep his word. If you want to know what God is like, and if you want to know what God expects of you, you cannot bypass Jesus. You must look nowhere else. One stop shopping. Jesus is the one, the only one, who's the exact accurate representation of the otherwise unseen God. That's what he says. Verse 56, he goes on, your, your father Abraham rejoiced. See, they mentioned Abraham. He said, speaking of Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, that makes you step back and you have to think. You're not like those Jewish religious leaders. You're not insulting uh, the Lord in any way. But a question does pop into your mind, and that is, how? How did Abraham see the Lord's day? How did he see it? How was he glad? Well, the answer is not to be given by me. (laughs) I don't know. I have no idea what this means. I only have a suggestion. Do you remember after years of being childless when finally a child of promise is given to Abraham and Sarah? His name is Isaac. And then God says, I require your son Isaac from you. Can you imagine this? God says, I want you to take your son, load him up with some wood for sacrifice, and make a journey It was of sufficient length that Abraham would have lots of time to think about this. I want you to offer your son to me in sacrifice on Mount Moriah. That's in in Jerusalem. You, you You can go to Mount Moriah today. It exists there. 
I want you to sacrifice your only son, Isaac. And Abraham, my goodness, whose faith and confidence in the Lord had developed over the years, is willing to do this. And just as he's about to plunge this knife into his own son, offering him inexplicably to the God who Abraham thought required him, a voice calls out to him and says, Abraham, withhold your hand. And then we find out that God has provided the lamb as a substitute for Isaac. I'm wondering if at that moment, because the gospel message is so pictorialized, so dramatized, so lived out before Abraham. He knew of a coming Messiah because God gave all kinds of promises. But suddenly, I wonder if he's saying, this is what the Messiah will do. The Messiah will be a substitute for the rest of us. God is not requiring any of us to be offered as a sacrifice. God will provide the lamb, and the lamb is his own son, the coming Messiah. I wonder if that whole episode really, really portrayed in a magnificent supernatural way to Abraham the picture of the fullness of the gospel message. I don't know, I'm just guessing. All I know is this text is true, and it says long before Jesus was in flesh, Abraham saw him coming and rejoiced in it. And so the Jews in verse 57 said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham you see what they're saying the Lord is saying I have some notion of Abraham's life experience implying that he was with Abraham and they're saying what are you talking about you're not even 50 years old now did they just choose that number arbitrarily I don't think so why did they say you're not even 50 years old was it because he looked 50 I don't think that's it folks The age of retirement for Levitical priests was 50. Thank you, brother. This is not arbitrary. This is on purpose. They knew this, and they're, they're essentially saying this. If you were a Levitical priest, you wouldn't even be old enough to reach the age of retirement. How could you say you existed Uh, In the day of Abraham, to the extent that you knew what what was in Abraham's mind. That's essentially what what they're saying here. And in verse 58, the Lord responds. Jesus said to them, how many times does it say truly in your Bible? Two times. Truly, truly. This is true to the max. Pay attention to this. Amen, amen, is what he's actually saying. Amen, amen, I say to you. Before Abraham was born, do you have this in your Bible? I am. If you don't have that, you better get a better Bible. Hey, you don't have before Abraham was born, I was. You don't have that, do you? If you have I was rather than I am, you've got to get rid of that Bible. Because that is a mistranslation, and it is robbing you of one of the most significant points in John's gospel. Read the text. I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He did not say, before Abraham was, I was. If he simply said that, he would be laying claim simply to being there before Abraham, which in itself would be quite stupendous, but what he really says is much more stupendous than even that. He does not say before Abraham was born, I was. I was before Abraham. That's not what he's saying. He said, unless I'm reading this wrongly, and please tell me, 
if I am. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. He's not merely saying that he came into being sometime before Abraham. He's saying something way beyond this. Before Abraham was, I am. Now today, uh, we're prone to miss the significance of what this means, but I assure you the Jewish religious leaders whom the Lord was speaking to did not miss what he was saying. You see, in effect, this Lord Jesus was claiming to be God. He's right there in the midst. He's in Jerusalem, the holy place. In the midst of the Jewish religious leaders, he is laying claim to divinity. How do I know that? Folks, this I am description and designation was uttered earlier by God himself as a name he and he alone could take. We read about it way back in Exodus chapter 3. I'll read it to you. Verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, Listen, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God takes on this verb of being, not I was or will be, <laughs> I am. It's just a state of being. I'm, I'm, who is God? He's the one who has no beginning nor end. You do, I do, but not God. God is self-existent. I can prove to you that no one here is. Point to your belly button. Everyone has a belly button. Point to it. I just want to make sure you know where it is. Look at that. Mine is right over here. Yours is probably in the, <laughs> in the customer reply. You know what that means? It means we're not self-generated. That's what this means. Your belly button is like a loudspeaker telling you you're not your own. You didn't get here by your own wit and wisdom. You, you were birthed by somebody and on and on and on. But not God. Not God. He's self-existent. He's self-generating. Only God could say, I am the great I am. And when Jesus took that title on himself before Abraham was, I am, he's saying, I am God. That's what the carpenter's son, who looks like everybody else in Jerusalem at this time, dark-skinned probably, dark-skinned, short, probably, curly hair, probably, not entirely all that handsome, probably. I'm telling you, he just was normal. This one claimed to be almighty God. Before Abraham was, I am. That's what he said. Folks, there never was a time when uh, Jesus really came into being. Don't miss the celebration of Christmas. Don't, don't get it wrong. There never was a time when Jesus was not. On Christmas, we celebrate he, his coming into this world, into this space-time dimension where we live so that he could extend himself to us. We celebrate the fact that transcendent deity was willing to condescend, stoop, take on enfleshment so that he could live for us, so that he could die for us. That's what we're celebrating. We're not celebrating the beginning of Jesus. Jesus is the great I am. He has no beginning nor ever any end. There never was a time when Jesus was not. There never is a time when Jesus will not be 
He is the great, he is the great I am. That's what we, that's what we celebrate. The Jesus of the Bible is the self-existent and eternal God. Folks, I have to tell you, the baby born in Bethlehem um, is misrepresented by all the cults and sadly, popularly by many, if not most people today. They have reduced uh, Jesus Uh, to such an extent he's not big enough and authoritative enough to save anybody from their sins. Only the great I am could do that. Don't miss the point. He is the great I am. Don't pare him down. Don't minimize him. Uh, you can recognize a cult on the basis we call it of, his Chris, of its Christology. What do they think about Christ? You can tell a cult from Orthodox Christianity on the basis of what they think about Jesus. Folks, don't misunderstand this cuddly little tender baby is the Lamb of God who came to suffer and die for our sins. And only he who is the great I am could do it. That's, that, that's what he did. So on Christmas, we're not celebrating his beginning. We're celebrating the fact that he became Emmanuel, God with us. Now, I think it's fitting, I hope you don't mind, uh, for me to take the rest of our time, not too long, uh, to, to, to read the Christmas story here. Uh, it's told by a great historian. Did you know he was a historian? He was not an evangelist or preacher or theologian. Luke was a historian. Those are people who focus on facts and objectively verifiable circumstances. Luke, the historian, wrote the Christmas story for us. It's recorded in Luke chapter 2. I'll just read to you a few verses. Here's what it says. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, see, that's what historians do. They tell us about the past. In those days, past days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar is not his first name. It's a title. Caesar. Caesar. Augustus was his name. There was another Caesar, Julius Caesar. You've heard of him. This was his adopted son, Augustus. In that day, back there, Luke tells us, a decree, an order, a mandate went out, not just from anyone, because not anyone had the authority, but the Caesar did. A decree went out in that day from Caesar Augustus, and here it was, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth, you see, Everyone in his domain was subjected to him, and his domain stretched far and wide. And he issued this mandate. He could do it. He was the leader of the Roman Empire. He told all those who were citizens of Rome, slaves of Rome, everybody, they had to submit to this decree. It was a census. Everyone had to go to his or her hometown. Doesn't matter where you live, too bad. Doesn't matter if you're inconvenienced, too bad. Doesn't mean if you can't afford it, too bad. Caesar told you to do this. You go home and you need to be counted. Why? Taxation. Nothing's changed. He's counting heads, frankly, to see the number of people who were required to pay taxes. That's what he did. He had the authority to call the shots. I'm telling you, it appeared that he, Caesar, was in control of people's destinies, but that's not true. That's wrong. While Caesar was doing his thing, destiny was being shaped. Can you imagine this? In a cradle in Bethlehem. Now, folks, the influence of King Augustus has largely passed 
But King Jesus continues to captivate our hearts, does he not? I don't know much of anything about King Augustus, but I'm so happy that before I came here tonight, I talked to King Jesus. And here I have the privilege of talking about King Jesus. Later I'll get in the car and I'll have more conversation with King Jesus. So to you. I don't know a thing about King Augustus. I'm not trying to talk to him. I think I know where he is if I'm looking. But I know where King Jesus is. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee. He inhabits a stinking little Jewish kid like me. And you're not so hot either. Jesus is controlling the destiny of humankind from a cradle in in Bethlehem. The reign of Augustus has long ended, but Lord Jesus reigns in us forever. Now, verse 2 in Luke's report, this was the first census taken while, here's somebody else, Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius. I bet you don't know much about Quirinius. Frankly, nobody does. I'm telling you, we don't know too much. I find it very interesting that people who are so influential and so important in their day, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, are today relatively unknown and unimportant. But the baby born in Bethlehem remains eternally significant to folks like you and me. Verse 3, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee. Could get a little confusing. Galilee's in the north. He's going to his hometown, Bethlehem, in the south. Why say went up? Has to do with elevation. Elevation. So as he's traveling from Galilee in the north to Bethlehem in the south, he's still going up in terms of elevation. So even Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth. When we go to Israel, sometimes people refer to us as we serve them in the Lord's name. I think I told you this, as notrim. That means followers of the one from Nazareth. I'm not ashamed to be called a Baptist. I'm not ashamed to be called a Christian. But I am thrilled to be called a follower of the one from Nazareth. Anyway, this is the place now. Very significant place. Only because of its most famous resident. Now, the Lord wasn't born here. He was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up here. In fact, Nazareth was rather insignificant in the Lord's day. Nothing much to it. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Remember that? It became a place of great notoriety down to today because the Lord took up his residence there, was raised there. So Joseph was leaving Galilee, specifically the city of Nazareth, to Judea. See, a province in the south. You got Galilee in the north. Then under it is Samaria. And then further south, Judea. That's how he's traveling. And he's going specifically to the city of David, which is called Beit Lechem. Beit Lechem, house of bread. House of bread. Interesting. The bread of life was born there in Beit Lechem, the house of bread. Why did he do this? Because he was of the house and family of David. He's just following orders. Quirinius, Augustus, you got to go home. Okay, so he's making this journey about 80 miles. 80 miles. He's going there. And so uh, he's bringing uh, his wife, who's pregnant at the time. 
soon to bear a child. It hadn't, hadn't happened yet. Because of the Lord's residence in Nazareth to this very day, Nazareth is known for its very wonderful Christmas celebrations. Nazareth, very interesting. Nazareth today is primary, uh, primarily an Arab uh, city, um, uh, Arab Muslim and Arab Christian. A few Jews live there. It's quite a nice community, actually. Most of the people get along. Uh, recently, the mayor of Nazareth, perhaps you, you read about this, his name is Mayor Ali Salam. Ali Salam. That is not a Hebrew name. That's an Arabic name because the mayor is an uh, Arab Muslim man. Um, Salam means peace. Mayor Ali Salam called off all Christmas celebrations. Yeah. He did it because of President Trump's uh, public recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's ancient capital. By the way, President Trump does not have the authority to designate Jerusalem as Israel's capital. I think God already took care of that thousands of years ago. All President Trump did is what his predecessors should have done, but didn't for whatever reasons. He just called it what it is. It defies logic not to call Jerusalem Israel's ancient capital. What he did is consistent with history. It's consistent with common sense. It's consistent with the Bible. Ah, Jerusalem is not really the Jews' capital. Jerusalem belongs to Jesus. He can lend it out to whomever he wants. As we read the biblical record, he did to the Jews, but they don't, it's not theirs. It belongs to King Jesus. What do you think he's returning to? He's not coming back to Alvin, folks. I don't want to hurt your feelings. He's coming back to Jerusalem out of olives. That's where he's going to touch down. He's going to set up shop, temple in Jerusalem. I don't know how he's going to do it because there are some other tenants there at the moment. But that's up for him. I don't worry about all that kind of stuff. But he's not going to rule and reign from Rome or Washington, D.C. or Austin, Texas. No matter how weird it continues to be. He's going to Jerusalem. So because of President Trump's pronouncement that Jerusalem is Israel's capital, Mayor Ali Salam, Muslim Arabic mayor of Nazareth, called off all Christmas celebrations this year. Did you know that? He made this statement, direct quote. Uh, President Trump's decision has taken away the joy of the holiday, and we will cancel the festivities this year. Well, now he just changed his mind. And he decided, essentially, yeah, it might have been a little bit of an overreaction. So they're all gonna, he's going to allow some Christmas celebrations. By the way, the next time you read about Israel being an oppressor of Arab peoples and an apartheid state, I want you to show me one Muslim-dominated country where a Jew could be the mayor of anything. Come on. This is an Arab Muslim man who has the authority to call the shots in Nazareth. Last time I checked, that's in Israel. That doesn't look like an apartheid state to me. Well, anyway, I, uh, I'm getting off track again. But here's my point. It looks like Mayor Ali Salam is calling the shots in Nazareth, just as it looked like Caesar Augustus and Quirinius were calling the shots in their day. But I'm telling you, that is not true. Behind it all was and is the sovereignty of almighty God. Those who govern, govern. There are presidents and prime ministers and 
and there are Caesars and emperors and mayors and governors, all the rest. <laughs> but they are not ultimately sovereign. And God could make use of every one of them. By the way, he did make use of Caesar, Augustus, and Quirinius, and they didn't even know it. Why do I say that? Long before any of these people were, God made a promise. It's in the Bible. I shall read it to you. Listen, you may have heard this. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, what does that mean? Did you know there are two Bethlehems in Israel? One's in the north, one's in the south. To distinguish the one in the south from the one in the north, it's called Bethlehem Ephratah. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. God made that promise a long, long time ago. It is not the governors and power brokers of the world who are calling the shots. It's Almighty God, the Almighty God who keeps his promises. Folks, he intended that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And in order for this to happen, sovereign God made use of the likes of Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, just like he can make use of all of the power brokers in our world today to accomplish his redemptive purposes. Folks, we sing it, and it's good theology. Our God reigns. If you don't get that, you won't manage to keep your head above the water of dismay, which is fast overwhelming us today. I mean, you can't read the news anymore without becoming profoundly depressed, disgusted, and discouraged until you start singing, our God reigns. And you remember, it's not the White House, it's not the Congress, it's not the Kremlin, it's not the Vatican. Oh boy, am I getting crazy here. It's almighty God seated on the throne. He alone is sovereign and nobody can interfere with his plans. So Joseph traveled to Bethlehem. Luke chapter 2 verse 5 says he did this in order to register along with Mary. Have I told you this before? Her real name is Miriam. Have I told you that? It's not Mary. I'm going with the flow here because I'm, I'm just a good guy. But her name is not Mary. Her name is Miriam. Miriam. How'd you get to be called Mary? There came a time when translators of the Bible, I'm not lying to you, thought it was just too Jewish. God had forsaken the Jews. You know, we're stiff-necked people. We crucified him. Therefore, we have to de-Jewishize the Bible. So they changed the name. I'm not lying to you. I'm not making this up. I make up some stuff. But this, <laughs> so her name is mistranslated. Mary is not Mary. She's a little Jewish girl. Her name is Miriam. Anyway, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Listen, Mary was then betrothed. You know about this. She was betrothed to Joseph. So they're not like officially married yet. Soon to be married, but not yet officially married. But she was with child. She was pregnant. So this is not entirely a good thing. She's probably in her teen years right now. She's an unwed mama right now. And the baby she was carrying, you know this, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? So put yourself in Mary's. You may be thinking you're facing a rough Christmas. Oh, wait a second. What about Mary? She's a teenage kid, and she's showing. 
she's like in her eighth, ninth month about now. She's really showing people saying, oh, is that a baby you're carrying? She says, yeah, what is she going to say? And people know she's not yet married to Joseph. They ask for an explanation. This is like a no-no. And she says, I'm, no, it's not what you think. The baby I'm carrying was conceived by the very Spirit of God. You think you're having a rough Christmas? How do you pull that off? How do you explain it? That's, that's the situation. So verse 6, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. See, she was in her ninth month. Now, I don't think the timing was ideal from Mary's point of view or Joseph's point of view, but it was from God's point of view. In fact, the timing of the birth was perfectly ordained, again, by sovereign God. How do I know this? Look, Alexander the Great had conquered the world, and he established Greek as the language worldwide. Everyone spoke Greek. It's called Koine Greek, common Greek. Not the Greek of the philosophers. It's the kind of Greek the man in the street could speak. Do you see how this facilitated the propagation of the gospel? The good news of the babe born in Bethlehem, he who came to make peace between God and man. This is good news. But well, what good is it if you can't communicate it in a language people could receive? But this is very fortuitous at this time. No mistake. God knew what he was doing. Everyone spoke the same language. Everyone spoke Greek. Not only that, under Roman rule, as oppressive as it was, Roads were built throughout the Roman Empire. Really good roads. Some exist. We travel them even today. The Romans did this. Not only that, they stationed military garrisons along the highways and byways to keep travelers very, very safe. Can you see that the representatives of the babe born in Bethlehem not only would have no language problem, but they would have largely freedom of movement. They would be unassailed. They would be kept from harm. The Roman garrisons policed the highways and byways, and they could get from one end of the Roman Empire to the other on these magnificent roads. What a time this was for the baby to be born. Mary didn't think so. I'm sure Joseph didn't, but God calls the shots. Nobody does but him. Not only that, at this time, there was in the Roman Empire a period of time called the Pax Romana. It meant the peace in Rome. It's a Latin term, Pax Romana. What did this mean? It was an unusual time of the cessation of military conflict and hostilities. Not for long, but at this time, it's a window of opportunity. Peace! And so people weren't distracted by war and military conflict. There was an order and peacefulness the world had not yet up until this time seen. Don't you see? God picked the perfect time. His representatives, ones who were screaming to anyone who would listen, the good news of a babe born in Bethlehem who came to save people from their sins, they could spread this news in the language of all the people everywhere because of the roads and under relative safety. Oh, God made made no mistakes. I'll tell you about the timing of the birth of his son. In verse 7, she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths. You know what's so remarkable about that? The fact that it's so unremarkable. It was a custom, a custom all Jewish mothers engaged in. Look, think about this. The baby has been enwombed for nine months. It's like warm in there. You got contact, and you're secure, and all of a sudden, boom. Welcome to the real world. Now you're out there. 
So Jewish mothers would swaddle the baby in strips of cloth. They would lovingly attach their, you know, arm, their appendages. You know, their hands are going, their feet are flailing all over the place. They would kind of reconnect them to their body to sort of recreate, recreate the atmosphere of the womb a little bit. They would swaddle every, every Jewish, not just Jewish, but people, ladies do this worldwide. That's what is so remarkable to me. It's so, the birth of the Lord Jesus was so normal, except for this. She, Mary, laid him in a manger. That's not normal at all. A baby in a uh, receptacle holding food from which animals would eat. That's not the way it's supposed to happen. She laid him in a manger. Why'd she do that? There was no room for them in the inn. So she's nine months pregnant. She's a teenage kid. Her journey to Bethlehem from uh, Nazareth was about 80 miles Rough roads. Uh, everyone who is from Bethlehem is there. There's just no room for Joseph and Mary to be. No place for her to have the baby. Um, there was a stable, perhaps. I don't know. Next to the inn. Maybe the innkeeper said, hey, well, we don't have any room for you, but how about that stable? Maybe that's what he said. I don't know. I do know this. That's not exactly the place you have in mind, is it, for the birth of your baby? We don't do that. You know how people are expecting a baby. They prepare the room. They make curtains. You know, they assemble the crib. They do all kinds of, put the babies. If you don't have a baby's name, you know, they put that on the wall. You know how it is. This is not, it's normal that the baby was swaddled in cloth, but it's not normally that, normal that the baby, baby would be in a manger. I mean, Jesus' first night on earth was spent in a very dark and dirty place. And that's not all. At the end of his life, it would end on a very dirty wooden cross. That was his life for us. I'll tell you another place that's not at all fitting, you would think, for the majestic Son of God, he who has no beginning nor end. It's our hearts. Our hearts are as dark and dirty as that manger and that cross. And the fact that this Lord Jesus would willingly take up his abode upon our invitation the fact that he would willingly take up his abode in our dark and dirty hearts should never cease to overwhelm us and reduce us to praisers and worshipers of Almighty God who would be willing to do such a thing. When you read what's happening in the news in terms of sexual uh, misbehaviors and all the rest, what I think when I read about all that stuff is that that's me. No, no, not that I've committed those things, but that I have the capacity to. So do you. Those people are not categorically different than me. That's, there's something wrong with us. Sin has really, really taken control. It's corrupted us. And yet the Lord Jesus, the sinless one, he who shared unbroken fellowship with the Father from before time was, is willing not only to have been birthed in a dirty manger, but also to take up his abode in our rather sin-sick, dirty hearts. I think if that innkeeper had known who he was dealing with, if he knew that Jesus was the Savior of the world, I bet you he would have found room for him. But he, the innkeeper, like so many, then sadly even today, missed the Savior because he didn't look much like a Savior 
king. As one writer said, majesty in the midst of the mundane, holiness in the filth of sheep manure and sweat. Divinity entering the world on the floor of a stable, through the womb of a teenager, and in the presence of a carpenter. He didn't much look like the savior of the world. And so they, and many today, missed the savior. Tragically, even during this Christmas, so many will miss what it's all about. A survey was done in Britain, in England, and it found out that one out of five British people surveyed had no idea that Christmas is a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. One out of five, 20% in England had no idea. Just as the innkeeper missed the point, so too sadly many today do. Now, though the Lord Jesus was birthed under extremely ordinary conditions without much fanfare, you and I must not miss the fact <laughs> that he is almighty God, reduced to enfleshment so as to humbly become one of us, so as to suffer and die for us. We must not miss the point. He's not our co-pilot. He's the God before whom we will willingly bow gladly in worship. We must not miss the Christmas event. One of the things that persuades me Luke's account is historically accurate is this. Luke's account is simply not the stuff of which legends are made. You see, one of the marks of a legend is that it seeks to surround its hero with glory and pomp and splendor. But never in poverty, never in a manger. That's exactly, however, how Luke records the birth of our Savior. It was in poverty. It was in lowly circumstances without much fanfare. And that proves to me it's historically accurate. It's not the stuff of myth and legend. As the wonderful Christmas carol says, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given without much fanfare. But it changed our lives and the lives of countless others and continues to down to this very day. I close with this. There was a lady. She was a missionary in Africa. She was explaining to a young African boy why Christians give gifts to each other on Christmas. She said gifts are an expression of our joy over the birth of Jesus and of our love for each other. Well, when Christmas Day came... The boy brought the teacher a beautiful seashell. She asked him where he found such a beautiful shell, and he said, I found it in a bay several miles away. She was almost speechless, but then she said, she said, it, it, it's, it's beautiful, but you shouldn't have gone all that way to get this gift for me. And the young boy said, ah, the long walk he said, the long walk is part of the gift. This Jesus left heaven, came to a manger, and then to a cross. The long walk is part of the gift. You're not going to miss what Christmas is all about. I know it. Do your part to make sure those around you don't. This is what Jesus did. 
He condescended for you and for me. He gave the inexpressible gift. I don't have a problem in the world with Christmas trees, gift-giving, family times. I don't. I know some people do. I do not. My only problem is that we, we dare not be distracted from the essence of the day. What a time for believers worldwide to pause and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. And even to renew our commitment to him. We sang this beautiful song earlier, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee. I must tell you, if you have still not yet said something like that to him personally, privately, come into my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for thee. Do it during this Christmas season. My heavens, it'll be the best Christmas season you can ever imagine. Let's stand together. Maybe we can try to reproduce just those words to that song. I wish Bill was here because he, he knows how to sing on tune and all the rest, and I do not, but we'll do our best. Here are the words. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. There's room in my heart for that. I think that's something, a commitment we have to renew all the time. Even as we go our way, we could invite the Lord Jesus to more, even more fully inhabit our heart. Oh, look at I think the words may... Well, oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. That's it. There's room in my heart for thee. Help me here. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for Wish two or three people Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Hope to see you Christmas Eve when we continue to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus.